It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. You know, more and more we're hearing stats on how the number of people who have no association with organized religion is growing. Um, these are people more likely to call themselves spiritual, uh, but not religious. And that, of course, means different things to different people. It's it's a position that seems to be more comfortable for a lot of Gen Xers and millennials, just young people coming along. And I think it's because Hollywood and mainstream media, and I think the educational system as well, control a lot of the airwaves and information. Um, and they have actually become the main purveyors of animus against organized religion, particularly Christianity. Um, but I digress on that. That's a whole nother issue right there. But the real point of this podcast today is to talk about why someone is religious rather than why someone in the midst of these modern times of prosperity and abundance, would, would anyone you know, continue to put their faith in the doctrines of organized religion? And this is a discussion that I think it's at the heart of who we are and the very purpose of life. Um, these are two quests that meet sort of at the crossroads of the meaning of life and how we live our lives. And these are discussions that I think that, you know, we're going to have more and more and more as, um, you know, people like me are trying to ring this sort of alarm bell. And it's like, you know, you've got to wake up. Um, you know, spirituality is a very tenuous and not a very strong position to be in if you're a human being made in the image of God. It just simply is not a very uh, strong foundation in order to live your life. Um, and we can talk about that more again in, we, and we will be talking about it more in the, in the months to come. But this has really been my sort of, um, uh, you know, I guess, marching orders right now just to sound this alarm about that. But so I'm looking for answers a lot today because we're in, you know, the beginning of the year from a man who has a lot of information about the Bible, a man who believes the Bible's divine origin. Um, and he's known as the Bible answer man. Hank Hanegraaff's story is, of course, unique in that he was an evangelical Christian who converted to Orthodox Christianity, you know, getting back at the roots of the church, of who the, what the church is. Um, and he got a lot of pushback from the evangelical community. And he's written a lot of books, lots and lots of books. And one of the more recent, uh, he graciously asked me to write the forward for, because I have to be, you know, disclosure here, that truth matters and life matters more. And Hank joins me now. Welcome, Hank. It is always a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> I just think that this is a, purpose, per, per, a perfect time to talk about, you know, who we are spiritually, uh, not the spiritual, not religious, but who we are in terms of what we actually put our faith in at the beginning of the year, because there are a lot of people who celebrated Christmas, um, who, you know, gave Christmas presents, who are basically sort of, you know, tr uh, cultural kind of Christians. You know, they kind of celebrate uh, uh, Christmas, give gifts, but not really understanding the true meaning of Christmas. But this is something, um, there's a verse uh, in the New Testament that really jumped out at me a few months ago, and I wrote it down in my note file when I, you know, I do daily devotionals. And But it, this is one that jumped out at me um, that I have to read, and I want to read for you. 
It's 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. And, it, and this is a warning, actually. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And then Timothy says, have nothing to do with these people. Um, but I want to focus on this having form of godliness. Um, your, when you hear that, what do you say? What do you think in terms of how you see this world today? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely true that there are so many people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power inherent in the biblical worldview. Uh, you mentioned the fact that I became Orthodox. One of the reasons I became Orthodox is that the Orthodox faith is not founded in in sort of a feel-good kind of application of principles, but a mysterium that is to be experienced, not just explained. And so when you as a classic example, partake of the Eucharist. It's sometimes called the Lord's Supper or Communion or Mass. When you partake of the Eucharist, you're partaking of a power that has a potency that's transformational for the world. Once you recognize that power, you're no longer satisfied with, with Flatlander theology. <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, the thing that I think about so often is that we've become wretched flatlanders. We, we say we believe in God, but we're living like those who believe that the material facts fix all the facts. And I often like to explain this in the C.S. Lewis perspective, where he says we have to find the wardrobe, walk through the wardrobe, and now enter the land of Narnia. And that land is mysterious. That land is the land that we will inherit for all eternity. We were created not just as physical beings, but body-soul unities. And the growth of those body-soul unities is an eternal growth, which means that in this life we can grow incrementally. But when we die, the soul returns to the body that body is resurrected immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. And then we partake in a journey that never ends. And that journey is to learn and explore and develop, albeit without error. Not only explore the physical universe that God created, and even if we could exhaust that, God could create new universes for us to explore, but also explore the ineffable God which is the very thing that we were created for. We were not created uh, for, uh, for mere life, death, and resurrection, but progression, mm -hmm. continual progression, which means if God is ineffable, we can never exhaust knowing God. So that is a journey that's going to take place for all eternity. So if you think about Christianity rightly, you know, not having a form of godliness and denying its power, but recognizing its power, 
It is to recognize that this life is a drop in the ocean of eternity, and we're headed for a journey that never ends, a journey of fellowship in the Holy Trinity. And that ought to be exciting such that we want to transform the world and tell the story of Christianity to the world. But we have, as I said before, sort of a wretched Flatlander mentality, Hmm. not seeing the beauty and the mystery of God and his created handiwork. You know, you also talk about, you you have used the analogy of what Einstein discovered in The Power of the Atom, and that, you know, we don't, we deny God's power, but if he created this world, that atom is part of his very creation. Yeah, it is. This is a powerful illustration, and if you would indulge me, I'd love to tell it to you the best I can. I always sure. think about uh, September 27, 1905, because that is the period of time in which Einstein publishes a paper that's titled, and this is emblazoned on the canvas of my consciousness, does the inertia of a body depend on its energy content? Well, the answer is encapsulated in an elegant yet simple equation, and we all know it. It's E equals MC squared. And that answer is replete with the capacity for unleashing a transformational energy supply that was previously unimagined. Mm -hmm. And what, what Einstein discovered was the power inherent in mass, the stunning reality that microscopic atomic molecules contain an enormous amount of energy. And when that energy is released, It can vaporize the world or, conversely, transform it. And, of course, we saw that with Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Right, right. But we also see that in power supplies like atomic uh, nuclear power that has great potential for solving our energy problems. But with E equals MC squared, what, what Einstein confirmed was a previously unrealized reality that mass and kinetic energy are equal since the the speed of light is constant. In other words, mass can be changed into energy. Now, I think about mass can be changed in energy in the sense of Eucharist. You know, the Catholics call the Eucharist the mass. So Mm -hmm. mass can be changed into energy. Well, the Eucharist is energy. And what Einstein revealed to be true in the physical realm must likewise be revealed to be true in the spiritual realm, that the Eucharist can be changed into energy, and the energy inherent in the Eucharist has the power to transform the world. So we're talking on the one hand with the Einstein illustration of biological energy, bios. When we're talking about the Eucharist or the Mass or communion or the Lord's Supper, we're talking about zoetic energy. We're talking about spiritual energy. And when we're impregnated with that energy, now we live not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. And we see a world that is beyond the wardrobe. You know, this is very interesting, I'm, you know, because I'm working on a, I'm working on a, a book and its subtitles is The Power of the Blood. And you've really talked about the sort of the Eucharist in terms of the power of the blood. What is the power in the blood of Christ? Well, the power in the blood of Christ is is myriad. First of all, when we think about the power 
in the blood of Christ, we're thinking about a metaphor. Mm -hmm. That metaphor is that Christ died for us. So his blood was shed for us. And therefore, when we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We're redeemed ultimately in a church where we're baptized, and baptism ought not to be thought of as something we do for God, but rather be thought of in the sacramental sense, that we are cleansed and washed and forgiven, that we are united to Christ, we're incorporated in the church, and the Holy Spirit takes residence within us. So what happens when we are baptized, it means that we are united with Christ, that his blood cleanses us. But the other aspect of the blood is what we're talking about earlier, and that is there is power inherent in the blood, meaning that when we partake of the pure body and the precious blood of Jesus Christ, or as we say in orthodoxy, the true body, Mm-hmm. the true blood, the true precious blood of Christ. When we partake of that, we're partaking of that spiritual energy. And when we do, there is an account. What I mean by that is St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, if you partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in an unworthy manner, some of you get sick and some of you die. The moment St. Paul says that, you recognize the power in the blood. It has the power to physically make you sick and kill you if you're partaking of it in an unworthy manner. Mm. That's then a twofold aspect of blood. The one hand, it cleanses, it forgives, it saves. On the other hand, It sustains and allows us to enter a mysterious world that is nothing short of intoxicating. Wow. Um, I want to move on to some idea because one of the things we want to talk about is some of the common objections to organized religion. And one of the things they talk about, you know, don't we all have to find truth for ourselves? You know, we're all individuals. Don't we have to find a sort of a truth and a sort of, you know, happy space for ourselves? And I want to give you an example of there's a movie that is on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. I just watched it the other day called Don't Look Up. And it's a satirical look at an asteroid that's, you know, soon to destroy the Earth and the complacency of politicians and the presidents and the media. But what struck me about one of this sort of spiritual persons in the movie was his statement about, you know, I was brought up evangelical, but I went away from that faith, but soon found, you know, my own version, his own path to spiritual wholeness. I mean, this is the only person who actually exhibits any kind of belief in God. And says, so I'm asking, is this kind of life okay with God? I mean, this sort of, you know, I found my own path to, you know, spiritual wholeness. No, because there's only one faith. If you think about it in macro terms, there's the faith and everything else is a splinter of that faith. And that true faith is revealed to us by the God who is revealed to us in Scripture and becomes personal to us in the work of Jesus Christ. So when you talk about true faith, You're talking about God's revelation of himself, his eternal power, divine nature being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse. And that God is not just ineffable. He's not just unknowable, but he has come to be known through the incarnation. 
Uh, Christ lowered himself to humanity so that we could know him, but also know the truth. So he's revealed in a person, but he's also revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and he says the Scriptures cannot be broken. Now, if you take any religious work and you put it under deep scrutiny, you find flaws. But you Mm -hmm. don't find that with Scripture. And that's why Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. Well, how do we know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was? Mm -hmm. Well, we know through resurrection. And that's what St. Paul says is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose, that he appeared, and as a result of that, people were radically transformed. So you look, for example, at the Jews. The Jews of the time, they gave up their sacrificial system. They gave up many of the things that gave them their theological and sociological significance because Christ had risen from the dead. So they stopped sacrificing bulls and goats because the blood of Jesus Christ is better than the blood of bulls and goats. And they became committed to Jesus Christ living for him to the extent that they're willing to die for them. That's why the history of the church is a history of martyrdom. People willing to die because they knew Christ rose from the dead, and they too would rise immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. Now, that's a long ways away from saying, well, I follow my own spirituality, whatever I think is true. No, there is the truth, and it is ultimately revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast and and pick that up when we come back, because it's a very, very interesting point that I want to get to. We'll be right back. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Okay, we're back at Lighthouse Faith Podcast with Hank Honograph, the Bible Answer Man. We're talking about, you know, is spirituality a sincere spirituality? I'm not talking about, you know, somebody who wants to be, you know, spiritual for, you know, an afternoon. But I mean, sincere spirituality, doesn't that count? And the idea that, you know, can't we find religion all, you know, we can't find the truth for ourselves. But this is the point we left with, is that can there be just one true religion? And I think that's the objection in this sort of pluralistic society. You know, could there, you know, isn't it so even arrogant to say that, you know, there's just one true religion? Well, it would be arrogant if I said it. Mm-hmm. But Jesus Christ said it, and Jesus Christ is God. And again, as I said before we went to break, he demonstrates that he is God through the immutable fact of his resurrection. And we know that the Christian worldview, therefore, corresponds to reality. I often say when someone says, why are you a Christian? I say, well, I'm a Christian because the heavens declare the glory of God. I'm a Christian because Christ demonstrates that he is God. I'm a Christian because the Bible can be demonstrated to be divine as opposed to human in origin. And I am a Christian because Christianity is existentially satisfying. So you think, for example, the problem of evil. Everybody asks about the problem of evil. Well, only Christianity has a satisfactory answer to the problem of evil. 
own what is that? Christianity. What is that? What is that? Well, well, so you think about uh, philosophical naturalism. Philosophical naturalism says there is no such thing as good or evil because we're just molecules in motion. Mm -hmm. Christianity says, no, God created human beings as volitional beings who can either follow him or determine not to follow him. So God gives human beings volition, and because we have volition, we can exercise love. So the God that creates us to exercise love is a God of love himself. What's interesting about every other religion is they have a deformed view of God. Mm -hmm. If you have a monotheistic religion, if you think that God is simply Unitarian, that Unitarian God is defective because absent the universe, he would have no one to love. A Trinitarian God has always existed in love relationships, and now he's asking us to enter that love relationship. So the existential problem of evil is answered in that God creates us as volitional beings who can choose to love him and choose not to love him. And as a result of our choices, evil comes into the world. And then God condescends to deal with that evil through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who, who suffered more than any man, more than the cumulative sufferings of all of humanity, so that we can be reconciled to him once again, so that we can go back to the Garden of Eden and forever eat of the Tree of Life, which is kind of an interesting story in and of itself, because you have the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden, Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve were supposed to eat from that and forever ascend the Edenic mountain to the Shekinah glory of God and become more and more like God, more and more God-like. But they stopped at the tree of knowledge, and as a result of that, they no longer had the tree of life, but at the center of humanity stands a cross, and on it we see the Eucharistic bounty the medicine of of immortality, as it has been rightly called, that we can partake of and then continue our journey to become godlike, gods by grace. But I think one of the things that people will object to right now is that the idea is that how can knowledge the tree of knowledge be deadly for us. Isn't that, isn't that just saying that, you know, it just confirms people's idea that, that the religious people are just ignorant because they said, you know, because we tasted of the tree of knowledge. Well, no, um, you know, the, the tree of good and evil, if, if you think about this, Eden was not just a flat land. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it's the mountains of Eden, as it were, with the Shekinah glory of God and the tree of life standing at the apex of that mountain. Adam and Eve went half, halfway up the mountain, and they, they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided to become gods by their own standard. And what we were created to be is gods by grace. Uh, never attaining to identity of essence, but becoming more and more godlike. We decided to shortcut that circuit. We, 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 we cut that circuit sh- short. And, and, and as a result of that, 
God gives us another opportunity to become gods by grace, and he does it through the Eucharist. And ultimately, as we see in Revelation chapter 22, uh, the Apostle Paul is shown by the angel, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stands the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the tree leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So we get to partake of that tree of life and continue to grow in knowledge and continue to grow in fellowship with the very one who saved us by his grace. You know, one of the things that um, we're bringing up, too, because you're talking about— Is that about, satisfying to you? It is. It's, to me, it's satisfying. I'm just raising—I'm just raising—because I'm just raising issues that people raise all the time okay. in terms of—because many people don't read the Bible. They just—they they read the Christian, or they read, you know, someone's actions, or they see things out in the world that confirms to them that, why should I be a Christian? Why should I, why should I be anything? And one of these things is about the guy, the guy, the idea that God is omnipotent. Um, he's, he's all powerful. Um, he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. Um, he's omniscient. He knows everything. And now you throw into the mix that the idea that we as humans are moral agents. How can God be both in control and yet we have the volition, as you say, to choose between good and evil? Yeah, well, you know, God is not a cosmic rapist. He doesn't force himself on people. Mm -hmm. uh, love, by its very nature, has to be volitional. And, and, and so God allows us the freedom to choose to love him or to reject him. Without that, love would be meaningless. So we live in a world in which God has designed the possibility for evil, but also the best of all possible worlds, a world in which we are forever able not to sin. Uh, so out of this volition, out of this this madness, we have the opportunity to enjoy God forever, the very thing that we were created for. So no one ultimately, Lauren, is happy without God, because mm -hmm. we were created for fellowship with God. And that's the great thing. We are talking about orthodoxy earlier. I mean, if you look at the early church, the essence of the early church is what Vladimir Losky pointed out. He said, after the fall, the history of humanity was the history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But then he said, the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the rescued to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. The metaphor is pretty powerful when you think about it. So you and I are on a cruise. The mm -hmm. cruise ship gets wrecked, uh, hits an iceberg. Let's say we're in Alaska or whatever. It hits an iceberg, right. and, 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 and we are suddenly submerged in water. And then we're rescued, and we're in the port of salvation. We would be grateful but we would not want to stay in the port of salvation because the Christian life is about something more. And that is union with what? God. So we want to continue on that journey. And that's really the essence of Christianity. We think so often in the Christian sense that it's punctiliar, that it's a point in time. So we say a prayer. Now we have a card that keeps us out of hell and gets us into heaven. 
and then we live like baptized secular humanists. But that's really <laughs> not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is to continue on a journey to become more and more like God. So God lowers himself to humanity so humanity can elevate itself to God. And this is what Martin Luther said. He said, word became flesh so that flesh might become word. Or Athanasius oh. said, God became man so that man might become God. So the journey is a journey that continues. It's a it's a journey of new horizons, new explorations, new worlds to, to see and savor. That's what the Christian life is all about. But if you think about the Christian life as, well, I pray a prayer, and now I'm going to get into heaven, and I'm going to be like Casper the ghost, strumming a harp on a crowd, then it's kind <laughs> of, well, there's not a whole lot of excitement to it. But when you think that as vast as this universe is, we can never come to an end of exploring it, and if we could, God could create new universes for us to explore. So we have this opportunity to learn and grow and develop, albeit without error. I mean, that's intoxicating. If we think about the God who spoke and the limitless galaxies leapt into existence, and we have the opportunity to come to know this God, wow. Now, all of a sudden, instead of, well, I go to church on Sunday because I have to do that and I pay my <laughs> now all of a sudden it becomes an intoxicating reality. It's kind of like when you and Ted first got married, right? I mean, Ow. the anticipation causes your heart to burst with joy. But sometimes we can sort of miss the mystery, not only of marriage, but the ultimate mystery of knowing God. Yeah. You know, w one last thing before we look, because you talk about God as love. And, you know, I wrote about that in, um, in Lighthouse Faith, too, about God as love. And out of that love, that Trinitarian love, the, the world is created. But many people ask, you know, why can't I just believe in Jesus as a teacher of love? Why do I have to see him as, you know, a savior instead of, you know, this example of a teacher of love? Why not? Well, it's not that you have to, it's that you get to. I mean, what, a, what an incredible thing uh, that the one who spoke and the limitless galaxies leapt into existence is willing to come into this world to redeem us so that we can have a relationship with the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. We're fearfully and wonderfully made by God, and, and we get to have a relationship with that, that omnipotent God that you described before, that omniscient God. We have the opportunity to know an ineffable God, and it's a journey that never ends. So it's not that we have to, it's that we get to. What an incredible privilege to know the one who, 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 who created this universe, and if you think of the universe, it's inexhaustible. I mean, we, 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 we used to think that the universe was fairly small. Uh, now we know that the universe is immense. We know that there are trillions of galaxies with billions of stars. The cumulative number of stars is greater than the sands, the grains of sand on wow. Earth. And then if you look at the grains of sand themselves, the constituent parts of those grains 
are such that there are more parts to a grain of sand than there are stars in the universe. When you start to think about the majesty of the universe, you get a little glimpse of the majesty of God, and he lets you not only get to know him, but he allows you to have intimacy with him, which is something that is indescribable. I can talk around it, but I can never fully grasp it. Wow. Wow. Hank, it's been so wonderful to talk with you. This is the kind of, uh, I guess, spiritual strength that, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking for and they need to have a reason to have some kind of faith beyond themselves. Uh, real quickly, though, what's happened for you? I mean, you have survived cancer. Um, so how is that going? Well, I'm you know completely cancer-free. I just had a PET scan about a month ago, and there's no sign. I had stage four mentle cell lymphoma, and uh, I, I, I take chemotherapy and radiation, and I go into remission, and the tumors came back, and then I go in remission, the tumors have come back. Finally, the tumors overwhelmed my body so that they were protruding from the outside of my body as well. Oh, wow. And the only possibility was a stem cell transplant, and one of my 12 kids gave me their uh, stem cells, uh, Paul Stephen, and that transplant uh, seems to have worked. Uh, what's really interesting, though, Lauren, is in the middle of the transplant. So I had the transplant on June 11, 2019. Two weeks later, I caught an E. coli bacterium while I was in the hospital, oh. and I went into a coma for three days, and somehow I still survived all of that. And so, you know, I I look at my life from the perspective that God saved me for a reason. Now, uh, I want to use the last you know, quarter of my life, because I'm certainly in the last quarter of my life, I want to use that for God's glory to the greatest extent possible. And, and you know, therefore, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to talk to you and, 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 and discuss the fervor of my faith. Uh, thank you so much. Hank Onograph, the Bible Answer Man. Any books you want to promote or get people to look at if they want to find out more information that you, we've been talking about today? Well, you know, you mentioned the book that you wrote the foreword to. I think that's my magnum opus. It's, it's titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More. And, and I love the subtitle, The Unexpected Beauty of an Authentic Christian life. I, I, I love this book because the first part of the book, the first half of the book, as you know, is about apologetics. Yeah. Why do I believe what I believe? Why am I a Christian? The second half deals with how we can know the mystery of the Christian life and experience union with God or fellowship in the Holy Trinity. Wow. I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. It is my pleasure. And I want to thank you all for listening. Um, this has been Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.